0: from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, making our way through the Gospel of John this morning. I told you that it would take us a while to get through the first 18 verses. Uh, This will be the last message from the prologue and then uh, we will pick up the pace a little bit in looking at larger passages of scripture and as we come to john chapter 1 this morning we are going to be specifically in verses 14 through 18 however for you to get the punch that is john 114 i'm going to begin begin reading from john, i'm going to begin reading from john chapter 1 verse 1 and read all the way down to verse who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me reigns before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. This morning, we are going to spend some time looking at what the Incarnation tells us. You know, we cannot separate. I was I was thinking about that this morning, and I've, I've, I've tried to explain to you my thought process. I try to finish my sermon on Thursday. I try to relax, do stuff around the house on, on Friday. But Saturday morning, I wake up, and from the time I wake up Saturday morning to the time, really, I come to this pul- pulpit, the, the sermon just kind of keeps playing over in my mind, and I keep thinking about it. And I was thinking about it this morning. It's one of the things that I do sometimes as a preacher, I think preachers do, will come to a verse and go, this is the most important verse in all of Scripture until next week. This is the most (laughs) important verse of all of Scripture. And it's kind of hard. Because every verse in Scripture is important, every word in Scripture is important. That is why we have it. There is not a portion of Scripture that we can remove. There is not a part of the gospel story that we can take out or choose that we like and and, and, and we want to focus on this. Not everything is important, but sometimes there are just there are those passages that just seem the most importantest of the most important. And John one 14 is that passage. And the reason I want to read all of it is I want you to get that, that thrust because up till now, John has just been talking about the Word. The Word is still in heaven. He, he highlighted, kind of foreshadowed a little bit in verse 9, but nothing has really happened. The Word could just be some existential force until John 1.14. where he says, The Word became flesh the incarnation of the Word. And as we look at that this morning, there are four things that I want you to notice about it. And the first is this, and also I just want to say this, folks, there's a part of me that feels like we're diving in the deep end this morning at the same time we're not even going to scratch the surface. There is that much in these verses. But there are four things that jumped out to me this week during study that I want you to see as well. And the first one is this. The incarnation of Jesus proves his humanity. It proves his humanity. This is where John has been leading us. Verse 1, the word is with God and the word is God. There is the, the coexistent eternal word who is with and who is God. God. He he draws that out a little bit in, in verse three. By the way, the word is the author of creation; everything that you see, the word made. Then he draws out a little bit more. By the way, the the word is is life, and and the word is light. He is the light of men. And then in verse fourteen, and there's I tried to pastors sometimes want to get real articulate, and I think this is one of those places where articulation is is, is bad. You get to verse 14, and what John wants to do is he just wants to smack the reader upside the head to get their attention. That's my articulate way of saying what he says in verse 14. Pay attention. This is important. He's so beautiful, right? The poetry, the it flows from 1 through verse 13, and you're like, man, this is beautifully written. And then verse 14, bam, the Word became flesh. Wow. Matthew gives us the lineage of Jesus it talks about Adam and Abraham and then tells us, you know, that, that Mary gave birth to a son. Most of the details that we associate with Christmas comes from Luke with the shepherds and the angels and, and the traveling. And Luke says, and Mary gave birth to a son. John says the word became flesh. The pre-existent eternal word. Became flesh. That's what John wants us to focus on. That Jesus steps out of heaven because in that sentence, John moves us from eternity to a very real and definite point in time. The word became. He's telling us that, that this happened. One particular point in time, and, and from a birth standpoint, we understand that, right? There was a time when we became, and people say, "When did you come into the world?" right? All right, I came into the world October 9th. I'm not going to finish that sentence. Right. Still celebrate my birthday with the fair. I love my city. so grateful that they do that. But nothing, not even my birthday. Compares with verse 14, <laughs> and the word became flesh. The, the, the eternal coming into his creation, what he created with his hands, stepping out and walking on it. It's a completed action. There, there will never, it will never be duplicated. You can't walk the incarnation back. There's, there's no going back. It happened. It became, the word became flesh. And John is telling us that hey, since he became flesh, that that there's a transformation taking place, and the transformation is that the eternal, I'm, you know, I'm I'm the present, I'm omnipotent God, all powerful God became flesh. He became something that he wasn't. He he stepped out of eternity and put on flesh, took on a body that is temporal in time and space. He became what we are. He became one of us. Because the Word did not count equality with God or a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself and was found in human form. That's what John is telling us. The incarnation, He he set it aside so that He could come and be human. And when John says this, he uses the, the strangest word, doesn't he? The word became flesh. Doesn't say man, doesn't say human or, or even body. The, the word became flesh, right? We don't usually talk about people being born as becoming flesh. You know, it, it's, a, it's an odd statement. Why, why didn't John use that? All right? Why, why didn't he say he became human? Right? Matthew's Gospel, he says, when the angel is telling Joseph, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. John is saying, hey, you want to know what Matthew meant by God with us? It means that God stepped out of eternity. Jesus stepped out as the co-existent second person of the Trinity and became flesh. He took on the flesh without ever ceasing to be God. He united Himself With a created body. And that is the great mystery of the incarnation. He is 100% God and at the same time, 100% man. And as John says, he became flesh. He's also, he's kind of pushing back on some heresies at the time. Right? Jesus didn't come to dwell in a man that he chose, right? Jesus didn't look down and say, hey, you know, Levi over here looks really good. I'm going to empty myself out. Into him says so no. He, he took on his his own flesh. It tells us that Jesus wasn't just a vision, or apparition, or a ghost. That he, that he he looked to be human. No no no. He took on flesh. He had flesh. John will throughout his gospel will say we touched, we held, we leaned against him. When you read the Gospel of John, you will see how many times there is physical interaction with the body of Jesus. John says he took on flesh. It also tells us that Jesus didn't just adopt some human and declare that person to be his his son. Hey, I like Reuben over here, so I'm just going to adopt Reuben and say that that Reuben is is mine. John is stating unequivocally the eternal, coexistent, creator of, of the universe, the word Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity and heaven and became flesh, just like you are, just like I am. He became flesh. The incarnation also displays his sympathy. It displays his sympathy. Some other passages of Scripture are instructive here. Uh, if you had the study guide or if you looked at the study guide, you, you would have those. There are several passages this morning. But Romans 8, 3 is the first one. Romans 8, verse 3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now in that descriptor, Paul says something that we just know. That, that, that we just know. And what we know is our flesh is sinful. Okay? We we know that humanity is a frail existence. We know that we, we are tempted to sin and as we read Scripture, that, that temptation is usually used with the word flesh. There is a drawing, there is a desire of our flesh that wages war against our spirit pulling us in a direction we should not go. Jesus says to His disciples, the Spirit is willing, but your flesh, you're, you're, you're weak. You're being weak. Giving over to the sleep instead of staying up and praying. Now, now John saying flesh is not implying anything negative. Paul, however, is reminding us that we're sinners. Right? How many of you don't raise your hands? How many of you have ever said and telling a story saying, Man, I wish I hadn't done that? I I I got in the flesh. Right? Too many of y'all are laughing. As y'all know what that means that 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 statement is never meant to be taken as a positive. That sentence is never followed by, so I donated to charity. right we We, we know what it means. Our flesh is 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 weak. right The word became flesh. The son comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. Then Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took of the same things. He, he, he became like us. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect or in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Along those same lines, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, But in every respect has been tempted as we are. When the word became flesh, he lived in the world and faced the same temptations that we face. Right? Now, that for me is uncomfortable to think about. It's it's uncomfortable to consider. Because first of all, we know what we have been tempted with. And we go, Jesus was tempted with that? It's Uncomfortable. It's also a little dangerous because we can run with that into areas that we shouldn't run and and come up with inaccurate uh, conclusions. So the writer of Hebrews says, and Paul in Romans says, he became like you. He, he understood what it felt like to be tempted. He understood what it felt like for somebody to come to Him and, and say to Him, hey, wouldn't you like to go do this? He understood the temptation. When, when Satan meets Him and says, hey, take up the stones, turn them into bread, throw yourself down, worship Me. He was tempted. He can sympathize. That, that's, that's an amazing statement. Because sympathy means that to, to suffer with. Jesus can suffer with you as you go through those temptations and those trials. He understands. That's why, that's why we can come to Him in prayer and say, I'm going through this temptation. I need your strength, because He understands. He's been there. He's dealt with it. He he has victory over it. To understand that and to sympathize with us, the Word became flesh. It demonstrates His sympathy and His amazing love. However, we've got to notice the difference. There's an absolute critical difference. We see it at the end of verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 4. We have a high priest who is unable... We we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, but one in whom every respect has been tempted, yet without sin. Unlike you and me, he never gave in. Unlike me and you, that pull in the flesh to walk away from God, to disobey God, to do what we weren't supposed to do, to be in the flesh. He never did. He never sinned completely and totally without sin. So when the author of Hebrew, and I know I'm working backwards, Hebrews chapter 2 writes verse 18, he says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to help us. We go to him in prayer, help us. We need your health. We need your strength, your peace. We need what you can give us so that we can not give in to our sinful flesh. Now, what is the biggest help we need? Well, I need peace. Well, okay, I understand that. I need patience. Oh, oh, I got that. I need. I need wisdom. I understand all of that. Yes, we all do. I do. You do. We all have. Is that our biggest need, though? Our our biggest help. Our biggest need. What we need is found back in Romans chapter 3, where we see the ultimate display of His sympathy. Romans 8, chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, "...by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." Why did Jesus come in the flesh? Why did Jesus become flesh and in the likeness of sinful flesh? so that in the flesh, through the cross where He is crucified, He can defeat the flesh. Right? That's that's what Romans says. It says He helped us, He sympathized with us in a way that, that we can't help ourselves by taking on flesh, so that in the flesh that He would condemn the flesh. Right, because it says, what we have done says, for what for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. You know what the law could not do? Right? I mean, we we think about this and we have a question about God's law all the time. God gives us the law, and the law doesn't make us a sinner. The law just shows us that we are. And so when when we sin, and, and, and we do, we com, com, commit those sins, the law then detects our sins. But you know what the law can't do? The law can't defeat our sins. It, it, it can't. The law can post 55 miles an hour, but that stop sign does not defeat you doing 65. Does, does, does that make sense? We know that when we blow by the sign, we we have defeated the law in our flesh and our sinful actions because we are told what we ought to do and we're like, mmm. Now, extrapolate that to God's moral law. That's the same thing. The, The law can detect our sins. Wow, I was worshiping that. Hey, the law says you're an idolater. Wow, I wish that person was dead. You're a murderer. The law detects that, but the law doesn't defeat it. Out in your the margin of your Bibles, if you write in your Bibles, Romans 8, 1-4 through 4 is where you need to write in all caps, shouty caps, whatever. But God had a plan. And the plan was the Word would become flesh, And here he uses the likeness to make sure that we understood as he's going to discuss the sinfulness of flesh. Not that Jesus became sinful flesh, but that he became flesh. He became humanity to do, to live, and to live without sin. Therefore, in doing that, he defeats sin. He defeats it. He upholds the law because we can't. And he in his flesh condemns sin in the flesh. Jesus defeats sin in his flesh, not in his deity. That is what Romans 8, 3, or Romans 8 says. Could he defeat it in his deity? Absolutely. He gave it. But it is through his flesh that he defeats sin in order then, look at what he says. He defeats sin in the flesh where we could not so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Through His flesh and Him defeating sin in the flesh, we now fulfill the requirements of law, which we could never do. Because if we are in Jesus, we are in His righteousness. Does that not demonstrate the great sympathy that Jesus has for us? That He was willing to take on flesh and defeat sin so that we could partake in His righteousness. Thirdly, the incarnation of Jesus unveils God's glory. Verse 14, there's so much in verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we're going to hear that word dwelt and we're just going to think Live. But it's a really unique word because it literally means to pinch, to pitch, excuse me, a tent. Okay, that's kind of, well, yeah, it's, uh, okay, I don't really get that. The word that is used, the root word for pitch a tent, finds its root in the word Shekinah. Now that tent and Shekinah should kind of perk up your ears because it immediately puts us back into the Old Testament. Right? You don't need to turn there take uh, you can just jot down these references, grab the study guide. Exodus chapter 25 verse 8. God is talking and he says, "Let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." He tells them, "Go and build this tabernacle this tent of meeting for me so that I can dwell in your midst. Then in Exodus 29, verse 43, God says that he will meet with his people of Israel and it, the tabernacle, the tent, shall be sanctified by his glory. There is a linking of the tabernacle and the glory of God. The people of Israel would be able to visibly see God's glory in His presence when He was with them because His glory would fill the tent. But as His glory filled the tent, it, it was a veiled presence. They couldn't see God in all His glory. They wanted to. And in Exodus 33, Moses is anxious to see God's glory, right? Right? Uh, God and Moses are they're they're having this this great conversation and Moses said to the Lord see you say to me bring up this people but you have let me you have not let me know whom you will send with me yet you have said I know you by name so Moses is saying you, you told me to do this and you you say I I I I know you by name so if I have found favor in your sight because I know your name show me your ways Show me your ways. Show show me your your, your presence. I want your presence to go with me. And as Moses keeps talking and the Lord is speaking to him, he comes down in verse 18 and Moses says to the Lord, show me your glory. I I, I want to, to see your glory. And God says, Moses, you don't know what you're asking. You, you can't you can't see all of my glory. You cannot stand as a sinful person in the, my presence in all of my glory, lest you will die. That's why God says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will, I will stick you over here in the side of a mountain. I know it's uh, uh, it's not in scripture, but I almost imagine God, you know, shoving him with his hand and just holding him in there, maybe holding his head, because if I'm shoved in that rock and God's glory is b- behind me, what are you going to want to do? You know, you you want maybe I can just catch a glimpse. So I, I've got this this picture, and again, it's not in scripture of, of God holding Moses in the rock as as his has his glory passes by, and God says to him, I will do that, but my face shall not be seen. Moses doesn't get to see the face of God in all its glory. Sinful man cannot do that. John chapter 1, the Word became flesh. Right, The Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory. We have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is telling us that the full and complete manifestation of the glory of God is seen in Jesus Christ. Unlike in the Old Testament when you could only catch a glimpse of God's glory. You could see it from a distance. That, that it was there, but you couldn't walk up to it. When you walked into the temple, there was a veil, a curtain, six to eight inches thick that shielded you from God's glory because you could not go into it. And now John says, wait a minute, you can walk right up to the glory of God. You can enter into the very center of God's glory. Because Jesus displays the glory of the Father as only the Son can do. It unveils. It, it removes the veil of God's glory so that we can see Him and see His truth and, and, and faithfulness on display. He says, we see Him full of grace and truth. We see then in God's glory, He's saying that He is going to display His truthfulness and His promise to save His people by His grace. And we see that when we look into the face of Jesus. We, we see in Him and all His actions the glory of God. But then finally, the incarnation of Jesus reveals the Father. Verse 18, John says that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. No, no one has ever seen Him, right? We, we, we can't stand in His presence. We, we can't see Him. No one has, except for the one who is at His Father's side. And that that literally means the bosom of the Father, reiterating the closeness of the Father while maintaining the distinction between the two members of the Trinity. The Word now has removed that barrier and become flesh. And in doing so, we, we, we can now see the Father later on In John's Gospel, as we go through that, they will ask, show show us the Father. John 14, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have you not been with me so long yet? You still do not see. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father also. He's revealing the Father. That's what He says. When He says in verse 18, He, meaning Jesus, has made Him, God, known. A lot of times, Not a lot, but I have been asked this question several times. Pastors usually get this. The question is, how do you preach? Now, I know what they're asking. I I know what the question really means. What type of preacher are you? What they're asking me, and usually what they want to hear is the response, I am an exegetical pastor. Right? The word is exegesis. It means that when I go to the text, that I have to subordinate my ideas to the meaning of the text. What does the text say? X means out of. So you draw out of the text. Now this is in comparison to something called eisegesis, which means in the text. Eisegesis, you place yourself in authority over the text. Best way to see this, Somebody says, let's preach. I'm going to preach this morning. I'm going to go to to Genesis uh, chapter one. In the beginning was God. And that's the last time they talk about what it means in the beginning was God. That's what isa Jesus is, right? It's that what does the scripture say to me? Bad question. Bad question. Um, Why am I talking about this? Because that's the word that is used at the end of verse 18. That Jesus is the exegesis of God. Jesus is the revelation and exposition of God. So that as we study Christ, and we look at His life, and, and we look at His ministry, He is revealing to us the Father. Hebrews 1 and 3 says that He is the exact imprint of of His nature. So Jesus, through His incarnation, through His life, through His ministry, through His death, through His burial, through through everything that He does, what Jesus is doing is exegeting God's ultimate, complete, and final plan of redemption. What is the plan? What is He exegeting? If He has come to reveal to us the Father and reveal to us the plan of redemption, what is it? It's in verse 16. Grace upon grace. Again, a better way to translate that is grace instead of grace. Even in the law, people found grace. God coming down to His people was grace. Providing them a way to cover their sins was grace. The only problem that we've seen was the law can't defeat the sin. But it was still gracious. And so what God does now is He comes as Jesus, as the Word becomes flesh, He replaces grace, and instead of grace, what He gives is more grace. He doesn't change the plan. He doesn't change how we are saved. Jesus just says in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, grace was there, but now I'm replacing it with the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Because everything that was in the law, that that was there that you did was but a shadow of the good things to come. What is the good thing to come? Well, the good thing to come is the Word who became flesh. Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment and the fullness of God's grace. Grace of the Word made flesh, grace of the new covenant, grace of forgiveness of sins, grace of God the Father sending His own Son to die on the cross for your sins and defeat sin in the flesh because you couldn't do it and I couldn't do it. And Jesus is going to exegete that plan. And John in his gospel is going to show us exactly how Jesus does that. He's going to say, this is the grace that He comes to give you. A grace that will save you because you can't. And then, the grace that you need each and every day in your life to live so that you can seek after Me and My righteousness. That as a believer, we will draw from a continual and never exhausted grace. And it flows from Jesus because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.